Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel we have Adi Angar. Hello, hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have a special guest this week, which is Michael Lubas. And Michael wants to tell us a little bit about a little thing he's been working on, which is called Paraxial IO. But Michael, why don't you tell our audience why we invited you and what all of this is about? Hey, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, so my name is Michael Lubas. I'm the founder of Paraxial IO which is an Elixir and Phoenix focused security company. So we make you know, a platform that's focused on Elixir. So my background is mostly in computer security, web applications and you know, bot detection. And yeah, it's just great to be sitting down and talking with you all today. So maybe first things first, like how did you end up founding Paraxel L? Like well, what's the story there, right? Like, I mean, I don't assume you woke up one day and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> So how did you end up doing being there where you are now? Yeah, it's interesting. So my professional background, I was like a penetration tester, which is doing security assessments for web applications. Most people who listen to this show have probably had to do that in a professional environment where you're probably working on just some software, you show it to a company that does this, and then you get a report back saying here are the security issues and things like that. So I had a series of jobs as well. A few years ago, I learned Elixir because I started working at Frame.io, which is a video collaboration platform. They make software for kind of the media industry. It was acquired by Adobe recently. It was a huge acquisition was something like a billion dollars. But yeah, their whole back end is, is uh, Elixir. And I was hired for the security team there. And naturally, I said, okay, I'm the security engineer. The whole back end is an Elixir. I'm going to learn this language. Um, that's how I learned about it. And it was just fantastic. I, I really love just working in the environment, learning about kind of the underlying Erlang and Beam. And that was how I kind of came to Elixir. So for starting Paraxial.io, what I also saw when I was working was there's a lot of companies that you know need sort of enterprise security software, such as you know bot detection is a common one where if you have like a reCAPTCHA, for example, when you're browsing the web, nobody really likes those. You, you have to solve a puzzle of like a fire hydrant before you log in. But the reason for that I, is because I don't like those. Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah, they're terrible. But that's just an example where. The reason companies have that is because of bot attacks, because they're dealing with malicious bots that are doing credit card fraud or trying to log into people's accounts. You know, it's costing the business money. Or businesses need to manage uh, vulnerabilities in their dependencies, or they need to do static analysis and also ensure those findings are being tracked correctly and triaged. So this is a category of enterprise software. There's a lot of providers. None of them care about Elixir. So I saw the opportunity to start a company that was going to serve this market. But you know, when you're dealing with the security company, you have now have the opportunity to really talk to someone who knows Elixir and understands what you're working on. Most cybersecurity companies are, are venture funded, meaning for you as a customer, they're not going to be focused on Elixir. They're taking this VC money to grow as fast as possible. So they're going to focus on Java, Python, JavaScript, the largest market segment possible. If they have Elixir support, it's probably because one person there really likes Elixir and somehow convinced their manager to let them code the integration. But it's, it's never going to be the focus of the company. So that's really how Paraxial got started um, with this goal of serving the Elixir community. So is Paraxial not uh, VC funded? Are you like bootstrapped? Yeah, how? Yeah, if, if you could explain a bit, that'd be great. 
Exactly. Yeah, we have not taken any venture capital money. I don't have any plans to. I like being bootstrapped. I think it's much better for our customers as well. That's great. So, I mean, I hadn't heard of you guys. Uh, so it sounds like you have enough revenue to sustain, which is great. Like you, you have, like, can you name some of your clients like, if that's okay? Yeah, absolutely. The ones I can talk about publicly are on our website right now. I have the Logo Cloud. Betafee, for example, they make this really cool software product for user research. So to understand how users are you know, interacting with your product, they actually blocked a bot attack on launch day uh, with Paraxial.io, which I was very... Nice. Um, yeah, so they had to deal wow. with this person who was probably... Well, we know for a fact they were sending these malicious sign-up events and they could have been trying to do credit card fraud. I can talk you through that attack, actually, if you'd like, give some background on, on what I mean. Yeah, sure, go ahead. I mean, like, I, I think it's a good example, like also for our listeners to kind of grok what Paraxial.io, like, offers, right? And like, what, what kind of things you might want to be on the lookout for as an engineer? Because I assume, as you said earlier, this is not something a lot of us have to do in our day-to-day, but like it's still in the back of our heads. Yeah, we probably should do something about that. So a real-world example, just go ahead. Exactly, yeah. So if you, let's say you, you've started a company, and let's say you're just making a project management site. So you log in, you create an account, you pay you know, $9 a month or something, you enter your credit card, and that's how it works. And maybe you go, oh, here, Praxial is cool, but I don't need it because all of my users, just to even use our platform, we need your credit card. So that's an authentication, you know, who's going to sign up with, you know, a fake credit card or something. Unfortunately, a lot of people will. So what will happen once you launch, basically, there's groups of people who do credit card fraud for a living. And they have, you know, a, a thousand stolen credit cards, and they need to test which one of them work. And you're not going to go to your local store you know, with a thousand credit cards and ask the guy to run it because you get the cops called on you pretty quickly. So you go to online shops. All of the big online retailers that you've heard of are aware of this problem and have defenses in place. So unfortunately, they actually really like to target newer companies. So a common sentiment is, oh, I'm, I'm new or I'm too small. Our company isn't big enough to be targeted. But unfortunately, you're, it's actually a little bit more likely because they want to target people who don't have defenses in place. So what you'll probably wake up to one morning, either in your logging or your application performance monitoring, is this huge spike of new accounts that were created. And that seems like great news. Like for the business, we have all these new accounts. Until you investigate the transactions and you see you know, something like 70 or 80% of them have been declined. And the reason for that is those credit cards are stolen and all of those accounts are bots. So now you have a really difficult day at work where you have to explain not only are the metrics are wrong, marketing's excited, but you have to tell them why they shouldn't be. Now you're, you're dealing with your transaction, your uh, payment processor, who might be trying to ban your account over this because they want you to implement bot detection on your side. They kind of try to transfer that. So for example, a really common control that I've actually seen payment processors recommend is to use reCAPTCHA, which I disagree with just from a business perspective. Because think about when you purchase something on amazon.com. Do you have, do you have to select photos of you know, stop signs? It's, it's ridiculous because they know people will spend less money on their site. But then you have these smaller retailers where it's like really important that your conversion rate is high using reCAPTCHA. And there's other problems with reCAPTCHA too. It's pretty easy to bypass and things. So I'm very happy that Praxial is able to provide this service, um, especially to new companies you know, that are not big tech, that are serving a small business or serving a smaller community. 
you're not, you're not just giving money to another tech giant. So that's something I really like about Fraxial as a business as well. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've honestly never thought about like that smaller companies are more likely to be targeted by this. It, it makes so much sense when you say it out loud, but yeah, <laughs> it never crossed my mind, like never. Every new product I have launched, without exception, has had a first day attack, like first day increase in traffic. The, I think my theory is some of these people have like crawlers on these company registration websites mm -hmm. and like just like, you know, oh, let's try to find domain names that match the company names and like just like keep attacking those. Like it just, it's crazy. <laughs> There was a great paper out of Usenix uh, recently where they talked about how with HTTPS, and certificate transparency logs. When you register your certificate for HTTPS, like you've probably used Surfbot or something, uh, that information gets published, people scrape that, and they just plug it into their bot infrastructure. So that's a, yeah. That makes sense. Weeks. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Okay. Um, if you don't, if this is not like sharing, I don't know, trade secrets, but like how in general would you even go about like detecting a, a bot attack? Like I'm sitting here as like a software engineer who has built a bunch of different systems, but this is like, okay, of course, recapture, maybe something like that. But you deliberately just said like this is not a very user friendly way forward. So like in general, like high level, how does a product like Braxel IO does the things it does? You know, how does this work? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think I've, I've done the reCAPTCHA comparison. So I'll also compare it to Cloudflare's bot detection offering. So most people on this, you know, you're probably familiar with Cloudflare if you're listening to this show. But a very basic summary of how their bot detection works is you have your website. Let's go, let's use that project management example. And you point the DNS of your project management site to a Cloudflare server. And there's a little bit of downtime. And now all of that traffic is your user types in your, your domain name. And their browser connects to a Cloudflare server. And then that Cloudflare server talks to your real, we'll call it the origin server. Okay. So Cloudflare does, you know, rate limiting bot detection, similar functionality to Paraxial. But the reason I'm giving you this comparison is because Praxial runs in your Elixir application code compared to Cloudflare. And a common you know, marketing positive to Cloudflare is because we're doing bot detection at the edge, your performance is better because you're offloading that computation to the middle server. Mm -hmm. But from a security point of view, that is not ideal for two reasons. The first is there's a very common problem with sites that are you know, protected, quote, unquote, protected by Cloudflare, is when an attacker needs to you know, run a bot attack on the site, they'll see, okay, here's the site, it's protected by Cloudflare, that's very easy to see publicly, but let's search on the internet for the origin IP address, like the real IP address of that server. Mm -hmm. And there are a million ways you can leak that, it's very difficult to get right. Once they figure that out, though, you, know, you can literally go to GitHub and type in like Cloudflare IP bypass and 20 projects will pop up. Once the attacker figures out the real IP address, they just send yeah. their bot traffic directly and they completely bypass the Cloudflare yeah. server that's in the middle. You kind of get caught with your pants down at that point, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's sad because their offering is pretty expensive. It's enterprise software. So you're paying all of this money for the service, but you know they're not going to really tell you, oh, hey, your origin IP leaked. So it's like you're paying for this product 
but they're not really solving your problem. So that's something I, I wanted to do with Praxial was have the ability to like really engage with customers and ensure that they're actually being protected. I guess like one possible approach there could be to like only allow traffic from Cloudflare to your infrastructure. But again, at that point, you need to be aware of it, right? Like you need to jump through these hoops. And and, yeah. and sadly, it doesn't even end there because um, there, I read a recent research article about somebody who proxied, uh, there's a, a Cloudflare product called Cloudflare Workers. So he just proxied his bot traffic. <laughs> Yeah, like it doesn't end, you know? Oh my God, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I was sitting, I was like, maybe that could work. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So like having it inside of your own system gives you some certain guarantees that like an offering like Cloudflare can't do as easily. Okay, fair enough. The other, before this episode started, it was funny, we were talking about robot vacuums and how they leak information. They'll send your floor plan to the cloud. So kind of relevant to that. The other thing with Cloudflare is because they're a kind of a man in the middle between your user and your origin server, so the kind of man in the middle in that encryption, they can see your users' passwords, authentication tokens, cookies. And the reason that we know this for a fact is a few years ago, there was this incident that's um, kind of been dubbed cloud bleed, where Cloudflare servers were dumping like raw memory on the internet. A researcher from Google noticed it and was kind of triaging the incident because it affected such a big part of the internet. And there were just Cloudflare's customers' passwords in that data. And the reason I, I mention this is because the design of Praxial.io, the agent is open source, your passwords never touch our infrastructure. You choose what data you want to send to us, but we don't just hover, like hoover up everything for collection. You have the ability to be careful about what data, because you can go on all day about how secure your code is, but really just the ability to not have that information is the most secure thing possible. Okay, um, but now now we are like in, in our application and let's say like we, we've used a product like, like Paraxel IO. What exactly is like Paraxel doing to like de- de- detect bot attacks? Like are there heuristics at work? Like what is like in general, like the, the underlying model which is used to like figure out, okay, this is, this is like a sincere user, right? Like accessing my website right now. And this is probably a bot. Like how does this work? Because this is not something I've, and I would assume a lot of people have had to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not fun when you also have to implement it yourself. So I'll just talk about three technical measures. There's, there's quite a few. But yeah, I, I would assume. Should, <laughs> yeah, but just they're easy to talk about kind of in a podcast format. So the first one that I really like to spend a lot of time on is rate limiting, which seems very simple. Like one IP address, limit the number of requests like login attempts it can send in a 30 second period seems like a simple description i have seen this like screwed up in every way possible in real companies (laughs) um it is so easy to mess up the cloudflare example i gave you right now was one people say oh we have caption in place so we don't need this and then there's an error in the caption implementation and then there's a hundred thousand login attempts another common sort of technique for doing rate limiting on login attempts. There's a tool called fail to ban, but the word, like the term fail to ban is just kind of come to describe this technique where you look at your log events. Like you have your web server that's running, you look at the logs that are being printed, and if too many login attempts from one IP are written in a period of time, you ban. The problem is there can be like that window where let's say it's a 30 second window and you want to do a max of like 10 login attempts. Somebody can shove like 500 login attempts into that period per IP address. 
So it's not really the rule you expect. Uh, with Praxeal.io, you know, the listeners of this show are Elixir-minded. So we're using ETS to essentially track events like that. And then on your sixth login attempt, if the rule is like five login attempts in a period, the sixth one immediately gets banned. And that's just because of, you know, ETS is a fantastic tool that you get with an Elixir code base. The second example I'll give you is actually a way to bypass IP-based rate limiting. So you have your, let's say you have your rate limiting set up. There's also open source libraries you can um, use for this. I wrote a blog post about Plug Attack, which is a really fantastic library. I do recommend using it. You know, if you, maybe you don't have the budget for Praxial or something, it's great. But you should just kind of be aware that there is a way to bypass IP-based rate limiting. So what attackers do now is they're aware of, you know, AWS has this service called API Gateway. Essentially, what you can do as an attacker is proxy all of the traffic from your computer through AWS. And what that does is every HTTP request now has a different IP. So all of the requests are coming from the AWS IP range, but each one has a different IP. So your IP rate limiting just no longer works. In the logs, it's like, oh, we got 100,000 login attempts, but they were from 100,000 different IPs, so they're probably legit, but you just, you know, suffered an attack. So the way Praxial blocks this, we use a Rodex try, which is just an efficient data structure for storing IP addresses. It's fully implemented in Elixir. It's a really nice library called IP try. The code for the agent is open source, so you can inspect it yourself, but I also uh, wrote a blog post on this. So this is like kind of public information. But essentially, the way it works is you have a plug that's just block cloud IP address. You do want bot traffic in certain parts of your application. For example, uptime monitoring on your homepage, you'd probably expect AWS IPs there. But for your login page, if you get a login attempt from a rented AWS server, just deny that. It's malicious, you know, 99.9% of the time. And then, you know, maybe you have a big customer that has like a hosted VPN on AWS. You can just add that IP address in Praxial IO to be allowed through. So you, you kind of see the benefit of like having the web kind of like the two components. So those are the two examples so far, just rate limiting and checking for cloud IPs. I'll pause. Do you guys have any questions about that? I'm like laughing because those are the exact two problems that I had in my startup a little over a year ago that I solved a little over a year ago. I ended up using a try to for the IP address matching because there's so many of those in the range and, and ETS. But yeah, this is this is awesome. And plug attack totally. I, I, I'm glad you made that call because I feel like it doesn't get talked about as often. It's something that, so I have this like Phoenix template that I use for every new project that I create. Even if I'm creating a side project, plug attack is, is a part of that. <laughs> like it's always important to rate, like add limit to have a maximum rate, right? Like it, it affects, it doesn't not only affect the security, it also affects the user experience of other users interacting with your software. But yeah, I guess the one attack that I could not really figure out how to deal with properly, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, is like just like bounce rate not necessarily coming through, you know, a subset of IP addresses. That was another attack that we had, which I did not know how to deal with really well. I, I, I would be curious <laughs> about your thoughts on that. Sorry, you said bounce rate? Can you so, describe what? So yeah, I, I guess bounce rate is like uh, called, again, I might be using it wrong. I'm, I'm not very familiar with like all these terminologies, but it's like how often one specific page of the website is hit compared to the rest of the pages. That's called the bounce rate, right? I, I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So, but if it's not coming from a, like a set of IP addresses that is known, 
Because you know for a fact that if you look at logs manually, there's something wrong. Like if someone is trying to hit, if someone is hitting a public page that has a list of price price shop and a competitor is trying to like watch that, like how would you deal with stuff like that? Okay, so it, it seems like you kind of want to do analysis on like the behavior of people on the site and see, okay, like this is probably malicious. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a very that's a very difficult problem because you can, it's really defining what malicious means. And that's different for every customer. So example, Praxial.io right now, we're focused mostly on sort of attacks against web applications. Things like the credit card example I described or credential stuffing on the login form. However, there's also this whole other area in bot detection relating to advertising fraud, where let's say you've purchased an ad campaign and you're expecting, you know, 100 real people to view your website, but you look at the traffic and something like 95% of that is bots. We're not currently focused on that, but that is kind of like another area of research. It's it's like very gotcha. active in that security side of it. Gotcha. Yeah. I've been talking a lot about the bot detection side. We also recently bought, launched uh, vulnerability management for Elixir applications. I can talk about that if you'd like, or do you have any more questions? No, go ahead. I'm, um, could you define also what vulnerability management in this particular context means? Yeah, very simple. It just means keeping track of all of the vulnerabilities for your Elixir application. I guess I should I should define the terms a little bit because it's confusing. So the term like vulnerability in your application, um, let's say you have like a SQL injection problem where somebody can send you a string, your application is interpreting that as like an SQL query, and then they can dump your database or modify other users' data. That's a very bad and security problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you'd refer to that as a SQL injection vulnerability. Not very common in Elixir because Ecto does a really fantastic job of preventing it. But that's what just we mean by vulnerability. But that's that would be an example of a vulnerability in the source code of like the Phoenix app that you're writing, for example. But then you also have situations where your dependencies that you're pulled into your project, they might be vulnerable. So it's not the fact that you wrote the vulnerable code, but maybe this library for pagination or something in Ecto or in SQL, that's vulnerable. So now you need to monitor all of the dependencies that are being pulled into your Elixir project. Or maybe there's a malicious package, or maybe a package is no longer being maintained. So you don't want to use it because if there is a security problem that's uncovered, there's not going to be an update to fix it. So The term vulnerability management, in my definition, it's really just being able to keep track of all of these things. Another component to it is ensuring that like the scans or the detection was actually done. So for Paraxial.io, there's currently three open source tools that we do vulnerability management for. The first is Soblo, which I hope is familiar to the listeners of the show. But if you're not familiar with it, it is a static analysis security tool for Phoenix. So it's for finding vulnerabilities in the source code of the Phoenix application that you're writing. It can also detect vulnerable dependencies, but I don't recommend using it for that purpose. Use it for the stack analysis. It's the best security stack analysis tool for Elixir. But the reason you don't want to do the vulnerable dependencies is because that is just encoded in the source of Soblo. It's not dynamically updated. There's another tool called MixAudit, which scans your project, but it it uses the vulnerability database that GitHub maintains. So if there's a new vulnerability tomorrow, it'll pull that information in. It's dynamically updated. And then the third one is actually built into Hex itself, which is MixHexAudit. And that's for detecting packages that are marked as retired. So they're no longer receiving updates. 
So I recommend using all three of these if you if you're you know you have a company where security is important, you're handling customer data, you know financial or healthcare, put them in your CI/CD. One thing though is there's a lot of regulations around this where you need to for audits be able to produce a report that says, okay, when was the last time the scan was run? Like was it run two months ago? What were the results two months ago? And you don't want to be that security engineer who's now you know, grepping through your CI logs and trying to convert like the plain text to like a Excel sheet for the SOC 2 audit or whatever that's going on. It's not a fun job. Um, so Praxial just simplifies that process, it gives you a chart showing that the scans are running, here's the findings, and it's just in a nice display. This is a pretty standard type of product, but as you can imagine, none of the vendors that do this, you know, like Sneak supports vulnerable dependencies for Elixir, they don't support Soblo. There's other vendors that support Soblo. So it's like it's like kind of spread across all of these different vendors. So that's where I saw kind of the business opportunity to just centralize everything for, for Elixir developers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, at, at the very least, you could probably set it up in like your CI system to run it nightly and then report it somewhere. But then again, you need to do it, right? Like you need to set it up, you need to manage it, you need to make sure it, it notifies someone somewhere to actually look at this. <laughs> so that's hundreds of engineering hour, hours. Like it's, yeah, I mean, if I if I had known, I don't know if Paraxel IO existed like a little over a year ago, if I had known that you you had existed, I would have definitely reached out because we spent, we were a startup, we had three engineers at that time and I spent like like close to 200 hours trying to solve these problems and that you guys probably solved better than us anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And it kind of, kind of paints Again, this this age-old battle, which was just like is a mental image I've often seen used in the context of, of security, is that like it's an uphill battle, right? Like there's this only one thing you need to miss, and and then you're in the worst case you're here getting getting kind of caught with your pants down, like an SQL yeah. injection. If there's like only one one instance of that <laughs> and someone is going to find it, then yeah, way hooray! If have fun with that. Yeah, I think the thing about security is like a lot of companies they like being reactive right you, you see something mm -hmm. happening and then you put in the solution to that having some like kind of offloading some of that responsibility to like security experts especially who are like experts within your domain like makes you proactive a lot of times like with healthcare and fintech data it's already too late if you're reactive you know <laughs> yeah there's you already have a liability which could you know potentially lead to a lawsuit and and your company you never know if you're if you're a startup so yeah it's it's so cool that something like this exists, especially like something targeted towards Elixir at application layer. It's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And I think what you said about how a lot of security is reactive, that's true of the security industry in general. Antivirus, there's all these products you can purchase, or even Praxial IOs, you could think of it as if you get a scan result and there's a vulnerability, well, it exists and now you're reacting to it. I suppose I should plug my training at Elixir Confidence. Like this is just a nice time to do it. There's kind of this culture shift you're seeing in security where they want to train software developers like in security. So rather than having to pay an auditor to find all of these problems, you know, six months after the thing's already in production, having your engineers trained in security and aware of these problems, it is an investment on the business's part because you have to spend the time and money to train your team, but it pays off a lot down the road because you don't have these security problems. Shifting left, if you've, heard, if you've heard the term kind of shifting left in security, that's, I think, part of what it means. But yes, for my self-promotion, at ElixirConf EU this year, there's I'm giving a remote training on Phoenix security. So if you're a developer and you're interested in learning more about these topics, 
you don't have to go to Europe. I'll be giving it remotely. I would love to have you, you know, in my class. Yeah, nice. And we can definitely include it in the show notes for people also to check it out. I have a quick question. I know I think I'm the only one who's not been talking the entire time. Just been listening. I'm just thinking I never put this stuff into my apps. I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of playing with fire or something. But you make me feel like a little bit nervous. Maybe do you mind to kind of give like a quick small list that people should do when they start off their Phoenix app, right? You've already named a couple of really good libraries. So below, I don't know if it's I don't know. I feel like I'm saying that one wrong. I'm not sure how to pick to say that one. Yeah, so uh, so you say so below, but I say so below. So oh, it's, it's whatever. Fine. <laughs> it's you know, it's so below, Alan. <laughs> so below, yeah, so below me. Yeah, I mean, you named a couple of packages, right? Maybe do you, as somebody who's been in this industry for some time and you're giving this training, do you mind to kind of give what you think would be some stuff that we should, you know, keep in our toolbox or even like a check box, checklist that we should do every time we create a Phoenix, I'm going to say Phoenix app, right? Phoenix is not your app. Every time we create an app that uses Phoenix. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a great call out too, because that's a common question I get. I actually wrote an article on this topic. It's called Securing Elixir Phoenix Applications, Five Tips to Get Started. Um, It's up on the Praxial.io blog. We can go through it right now if you'd like, if you want to, I don't know if you guys can pull it up. So yeah, this article I wrote is just five tips to kind of get started with Phoenix security. The first one is just to be aware that the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, the security working group, publishes guidelines on secure coding and hardening in Elixir and Erlang. And there's some really great tips in there. For example, it talks about atom exhaustion, which is this denial of service problem that's unique sort of to Elixir and Erlang. Atoms aren't garbage collected. But just being aware that this document exists and reading it, I think is probably the best first step if you're interested in this topic. Yeah, I'm surprised that the atom exhaustion thing is not on more people's minds. I've seen quite, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think mm-hmm. Adi was not here. There was a guy who tried to slide this in in terms of convenience. And I was like, no, 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 that's that's not going to happen. I mean, scale is a big factor there, right? Like if you, if you work yeah. in something that like, I just joined the score, they're like so anti-atoms. Like, yeah, it, it just, <laughs> it just, it could kill your memory very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's nice because it's these guidelines were written. I was not on the security working group at the time they were written. I'm a member now. But the people who wrote them just are really focused on this topic. And it's just fantastic guidelines. The second suggestion on the article is just to simply use Soblo in your application. If your Phoenix application is like a production piece of software that customers or users enter their data into it, just use Soblo. It's very easy to get set up. And it will catch all of those security problems we were talking about earlier, such as SQL injection or cross-site scripting. I was just looking and I didn't notice that there's a list uh, to Adam. That's very weird, but let's do a char list. So that makes sense. Is that because you guys saw that before or not? I've only seen string that to, to Adam. never seen a list that to Adam. Yeah, that, that's what I like about the secure coding guides because you think of, okay, this is maybe the correct way to do it, but then there's also an incorrect way to do it, which might be lurking, yeah. especially large code bases. So it's it's good to just be familiar with the right and wrong way to do things securely. You know, what I also feel a little bit weird too, is why is it that some of these things are still in, like still available? Like why are we able to create at runtime all these atoms? Is it even a good idea? Sounds like usually a bad idea, but I guess there must be a good reason or else we would be, that'd be ripped up by now, right? So there was an interesting discussion on the Erlang mailing list or it was the Erlang forum about like why this is possible. And there actually have been proposals, I believe, to do garbage collection of atoms. I think this part of it is that there is good tooling, at least, to catch this sort of thing. It is something you have to learn when you're coming to Elixir. 
and Erlang. But if you're dealing with this problem kind of in your application, there's ways to detect it and kind of steer away from it. And then there's also the difference of you have your needs as someone who's writing like a web application in Elixir, but then Erlang has this whole history. And the, the people who work on like Erlang and the OTP platform, they, they've put a lot of care into this. So if there isn't, I, I feel like there's probably a good reason just based on like the interactions I've had with them. They do seem to think these things through very well. Yeah, I think this is a good blog post. I don't see plug a tag being mentioned here, though. But I mean, you, you did mention it over in the, the beginning, but that's... It, it, it should be in the blog post. Oh, it's the Tyler Young article from Felt. He used a plug attack. I don't think... I, you can't you can't search for plug attack in the article, but that link that he's he walks through using a plug attack gotcha. in production at Felt. It's a great article. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess one more thing I, I generally add if I'm doing authentication in the application itself is like a, like a have I been pwned or something like that is also super useful. Like make sure your pa- the passwords are good. Enforcing good passwords for your users, like is it, it's oftentimes ignored, <laughs> like like user level security. Because again, if you're dealing with data that's like healthcare, FinTech, like I explained earlier, like that's like increase your liability that you need to enforce better security measures. Speaking of which, and I would love to hear what you think about this, Michael, but like, I feel like it's always good to offload things like authentication to external services as much as possible, buying over building these especially like crazy security level, crazy things that are that need high level of security, like authentication, instead of building it on your own and potentially doing something wrong. Like always buying something. Odd series is one that I generally buy because it's like sometimes free and mostly like uh, very, very inexpensive. But I know people differ, but I don't know what you think about that, Michael. Yeah, in my experience, security is something that is very important for companies that are using Elixir. However, they usually are not in a business position where they can have a fully staffed security team. There are businesses, I worked for a business that had a staffed security team and was using Elixir. And I think that is really fantastic that we have more security people like doing work in Elixir. However, you do need these things in place. Like you do need bot detection. That is sort of a basic business requirement or you do need vulnerability management. And for teams that are kind of staring down this project of, okay, are we going to build this thing for the next you know, few months and debug it and maintain it when there's kind of business requirements, features that have to be built, you face that trade-off. The other thing too is the security teams of companies, they're usually dealing with security problems that are most relevant to the business, which are unique. So what I, what I see is there's large security teams, they're focusing on these problems that are just most relevant to the company they're working on. But then there's also this generic thing of, you know, you need vulnerability management, you need bot detection and Elixir. So that's where I kind of see the benefit of Praxial, where it's common to all of these teams. And by everyone buying it, not only does the ecosystem benefit because now you know the company gets better, but kind of everyone benefits as well, where the centralization is, is beneficial compared to everyone trying to build this system on their own. So there's eight vulnerability management tools or whatever, and, and that's not always an ideal situation. So as like someone who's living in, in Europe and like with GDPR in Germany, right, like all of those kind of things, like what is, uh, you earlier said that like you can decide what kind of information you're sending to Paraxial. Can you give a little bit of like insight into what the data privacy aspect uh, that contains? Because I would assume that especially people from Europe and, and companies from Europe, that is something which is very much relevant for them. Yeah, exactly. I've talked to a lot of businesses too that had concerns about using Google or using Cloudflare because of GDPR concerns. You know, they didn't want their data going through this ad tech, big tech company or their data being decrypted. 
So Praxial, the data we collect is strictly for you know, security purposes. And that collection is treated a bit differently under current laws compared to marketing data, for example. So collecting IP addresses to do rate limiting or to do alerting on this IP did too many login attempts, we'd like to ban it and collect metrics on that. That is treated differently, for example, for using that information to market or track users. So Praxial.io, it's strictly security software. You know, we don't sell data or trade data with any third parties. It's collected by us, strictly used just for security purposes, and then deleted when, you know, you're done using it. That's something we really like. We don't profit off of like data resale or anything. And it's a very common concern with businesses in Europe, especially. They're very interested in where's their data going? Do I even have control over what data I'm giving to my vendors? You know? Yeah, thank you. I, if you don't mind, Michael, I would like to ask some bit harder technical questions because I'm curious. And basically, earlier you said, for example, for rate limiting that you're using ETS. And like, I, I'm also very much a fan of ETS. But the point then is like, what, what, what if you have multiple nodes running, right? Like, what if you have multiple versions of your app running? Maybe they're even clustered, right? That, that some people are doing clustering. I don't think it's a very common thing happening with every application out there. But I, I for example, have built a clustered application. So is there something there where Paraxel also maybe solves some of these problems or offers like alternative pluggable backends like Redis? I mean, that, that is like the, the non-clustering approach, let's say that, right? Like you have maybe a Redis running somewhere and then you can uh, keep track on that for rate limiting purposes, so on and so forth. Yeah, so it, it seems like you have a clustered application, you have requests coming in, and then this problem you've described, the requests are being routed to different nodes. And it seems yeah, exactly. like you, you want to introduce Redis so that there's kind of this event or like consistency where they like, okay, we compared across all of these nodes and we've come to the determination. This IP did like five logins on this node, three logins on this node, and then that's communicated. As you can imagine, that does introduce quite a lot of overhead for users. Yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> so that is not something that's currently in Praxial, for example. We do do monitoring on the back end as well. So it's like the two parts. We do ETS locally, just because it's such an, it's just so beneficial to do it. It's like built in. But then we also have the back end component. Also, in my experience, maybe it's different for you, but when traffic comes in, it, it seems to get routed to the to the same node, at least for a burst of it, you know, enough yeah, to trigger rate it. limits. Yeah, yeah. So there's just this like huge benefit to doing it in ETS because it's mm. like you can kind of ship it today. You can get Redis set up and everything, but it is a lot more work, I'll say. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm kind of playing, I thought I would play a little bit of devil's advocate here because I would assume that some of our listeners also have some of these questions. But sorry, Adi, you wanted to say something. I was going to say, like, I mean, it will also slow down each request, right? Like if you put, put have like a central shared Redis instance that every cluster, every node has to talk to before, like, oh, I'll allow this user to go forward, right? ETS being in the same vicinity as the application adds that advantage. If I would be solving this problem, which I'm not quite sure it's needed to be solved yet because of what Michael said, like mostly you expect it to be in the same node. And even if it's not in the same node, the cost of that might not be as bad, you know, like, because, you know, if you're making 5 million requests and if you make 5 million first requests, and if it goes to a new node, 5 million second requests might go to the same node too, right? Like again, only for one request, it will add the advantage. But say, let's say it adds, let's say it solves the problem. I would still use ETS and after the ETS verification happens, I would write that to a you know shared Redis or something and do like a post response sync with other ETS. Uh, you know, not let it s slow down the initial request that's yeah, coming. Yeah, fair enough. 
yeah, and have like a lag between ETS. That, that might be a good way of doing that. But I actually, I might have misunderstood what Michael was saying about the ETS. I thought he was using ETS for the, to store the try, which is static, right? Pretty much. Oh, oh it's very, I'm a very funny story about that if, you, if you'd like to okay, Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I was researching how to solve this, it, it's the subject of the talk I gave at ElixirConf. It's, okay, you have, let's say, a million IP prefixes. So you put them in the try. That's like part one of the problem. But in Elixir, shared access to a large chunk of memory is actually a pretty difficult problem because of you know, how Elixir and Erlang work. So your first stop might be to use a gen server. So like just put it in a gen server, message comes in, you're shaking your head because you know, you've just introduced a bottleneck. This is actually yeah, an example exactly. from the <laughs> Elixir like getting started guide. They're like, hey, you have a bottleneck now. Through gen like a one process gen server, you kind of just made your app a, like single threaded a bit. Use ETS instead. So naturally, you you reach for ETS second. The problem that you'll run into if you're using the IP try library, which is what I did, is the IP try is represented as just a map in Elixir. ETS does not have like a native data type for maps. So let's say it's like twenty megabytes. Every process that calls in to ETS. That's a 20 megabyte memory copy out to the calling process. So you get enough requests, then you just blew up your memory consumption. There's a feature, though, in Erlang called persistent term. And it's created for the purpose of kind of shared access to a big chunk of memory. The downside is you can't update it as frequently. So for this problem of the IP addresses, let's just remove the requirement for updates. Let's just stay on start. Because these things don't really, I think they change like once a month or something maximum. Just remove that requirement. And then now when you call into it, you know, it gets created on your application startup. There's no longer a memory copy. There's also ways to do it. I actually, I, I'm playing around with this idea of like kind of a railway system where like you keep two copies of it and then you can actually change it by like switching over. Somebody talked to me about this at CodeBeam. But essentially that, that's, if you've never used persistent term before, Here's kind of like a real-world example of, of why you'd want to use it instead of ETS. That's such a cool idea to use persistent term. That's really cool. I had the same problem with ETS. I, I was going to ask that question to you, how did you st- end up starting the try? I had to create my own structure in ETS that so I, I'm not accessing as much amount of memory at once, but that made my implementation complex. But persistent term, I didn't even think about it. That, that's such a good idea. I feel like persistent term is one of these little unknown tools in the Elixir and Erlang developers tool belt, which there is rarely a good use case for it. But sometimes it comes around and you're like, yes, thank you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's good to summarize, right? If you have a lot of data that you want to store in memory and you're like, let's use ETS for that. But if it's not getting updated as often consider mm-hmm. persistent term right that's that's a good way to summarize it exactly yeah because i was reading the documentation it didn't really click for me until i was like kind of working through this problem it's like oh yeah that's because there's a warning label in the airline documentation it's like do not use this as a replacement for ets yeah we, we also we also use persistent term once in an application where we kind of read configuration from from a file on disk and that occasionally changed but like maybe i don't know like every few days because somebody change the configuration thing there, right? Like it was, I think it was a mounted config map from like Kubernetes. And then we actually had like one process which read that thing like every half an hour or something and then just updated the system. I'm not exactly sure what what, what the timing there was, but it was 
also a good use case because it was like one of the, the configuration things which need to be accessed by basically every process on the particular application. So it, it, it can be really be useful, uh, but it's one of those things. Yeah, I'm not even sure how we came across it. Like I think somebody was like, wait, I think there's persistent term. I heard it before. Like it's, it's not, I don't feel it's like that much public knowledge, so to speak. They heard about it on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, no. <laughs> because after, only after that, afterwards, I spoke about it on the podcast at some point. So <laughs> maybe, maybe previous episode where I wasn't here. So yeah. I actually have, have another question because I, I would assume you probably managed that pretty well with Paraxel, but um, I, I think some other people have the same question. And I don't presume that like for every request which comes in, you talk with like your infrastructure at Paraxel, right? Because they would just introduce unnecessary latency. But what I'm getting that is basically how gracefully does like the integration into your application degrade if there is a downtime on your side, right? Is there even like any kind of degradation happening? Is there even some kind of phoning home to a certain degree? And yeah, what basically what happens if I first integrate the application and your servers are down? <laughs> so this is this actually it's interesting because engineers really like the answer I'm about to give, which is let's say Paraxial's, you know, having an issue, your application will continue to function as normal, which is exactly what you want, you know, no downtime. Yes, yes. From a business point of view, though, this is horrible because what you really want is to make your customers as dependent on you as possible. So like if Cloudflare goes down, like your site goes down, and you don't want to change your DNS settings, so it's like very sticky. So that is something that's nice um, for developers is Paraxial. It's very easy to install. It's very... You know, it's not going to get in the way of your application if there's an issue. It's sort of, it would fail into a position where you stay up, which is like kind of in the spirit of Erlang and Elixir, I think. But it's also a little bit of a, a downside from a business point of view because it's now easier to remove or something where it's like these big enterprises. My conspiracy theory is they make them so difficult to install and now you'll never remove them because it's like so integrated into everything. It's more than just a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I'll add some truth to that. <laughs> Just would you be willing to give a little bit of insight? Like, what what kind of communication do you usually do with like your servers? Like, what is something which like when I have Praxel set up in our application, like what kind of communication does happen there? Like, what kind of information does do we potentially fetch? And like, if if you're down for like, I would assume like one day, probably not big of an issue. If you're down for longer than that, then you have different problems anyway, right? But like, just to give like a bit of an insight there. Yeah, exactly. So that's a really common question too. I get is. When a request comes in, you know, does now the Praxial agent have to make a network request and wait for a reply before it goes through? Um, that's not the case. So I'll give the example for the two we've talked about for rate limiting. So if you have a rate limit that's like, you know, five login attempts in a five second period, that's evaluated in ETS, like locally on the machine. So there's no latency really delay at all, you know, the microseconds for ETS evaluation, but there's no round trip at all. And then the evaluation is also done on the back end as well for, let's say, a longer rule where the memory consumption would blow up because you'd have too much data in ETS. That's done on the back end as well. So there's a network communication there. For example, your the allow list or the block list. There's kind of like a regular HTTP request. It's very similar in architecture to like the application performance monitor you're probably using, um, like AppSignal, Sentry, New Relic, all, all of these agents kind of have a similar setup with the HTTP requests. Praxial IO, sort of a similar setup as well. The other thing would be the cloud IP address example I gave you, because that's the Rodex try. That's compressed on the back end and just retrieved at startup. I had actually the idea to release like a library that would pull all that data down as like an open source tool. The problem 
that I ran into. And the reason I shifted it to the back end is it, it downloading all of that data and then parsing the different formats from the providers and compressing it, it, it blows up your memory consumption. Um, you couldn't even deploy on like the Fly.io feature anymore. So that's why I, I kind of abandoned that project. But essentially for evaluating if a request is coming from a cloud IP provider, it, it takes, I have the benchmark in my talk, but it's like microseconds. So there's, there's no network communication at all for all of those because it's, it's very important performance-wise too because everything's coming through your plug. So you really mm-hmm. want that code to be fast. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, thank you, Michael. It also shows that I guess a lot of the questions people might be having, you you took that into consideration, right? Like, and, and really try to get to a point where this thing helps you and gets out of your way. <laughs> that that is really my goal. Is I I really don't want Praxial's customers to have to worry about security anymore. I want them to feel mm-hmm. like they they have this protection, and they also have a company that understands what problems they're having and, and how to solve them effectively. I guess I have a very quick question. So say the IP addresses in one of the cloud providers gets updated, right? What happens then? Like you said, the persistent term is loaded at the start time, right? Like what's the process of like updating the list of IP addresses and recreating that try? Oh, you would just redeploy your application and it would get updated. Uh, pretty straightforward. Awesome. Most, yeah, exactly. And whenever you start, the agent pulls latest version of yeah, the store. Exactly. Uh, got it. Per- perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's great to field these questions too because I get them all the time on calls and stuff too. So I feel like your audience is ideal because they're probably asking the same questions. So <laughs> and being able to talk about it, it's it's fantastic. I, I would assume like for the next time you get these calls, you can just point at this podcast episode. Like, yeah, let's do I, this. I don't know if that would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the? Is it the IT crowd that, that answers the phone like that? Have you guys seen that, that episode or no? There's, I think it's called IT crowd, right? It's a bunch, it's a show in UK where these. Guys yeah, are, yeah. The, I don't know. There was, I don't know if it's every episode, or just one I've seen where like they just pick up the phone and put it next to a recording and they press play, and it's just the same questions for every guy. Yeah, did you try? <laughs> okay, restart it. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, it works great. Like they just recorded all their own answers and everything just matches up every time. Nice. You don't kind of, you don't kind of feel like that? That like sometimes you really just answer the same question over and over again. Does that drive you crazy? No, I really like it because I think it's a competitive advantage for the business that you get to talk to a real person who actually is listening. Because you, I mean, that's true. Like you do. That is like a business optimization thing where somebody at a VC back cybersecurity provider said, "Oh, here's like a copy paste thing." So you talk to them, and it's almost like a chat. It might literally be a chatbot these days. But I, I view that as an advantage of Praxial, where somebody is going to listen to you, like a person is going to really listen to your problem and come up with something that's a bit more thoughtful than that and more respectful of your time as well. If you're like founder of a company that you're passionate about, you want to keep talking about that, right? Because <laughs> that, that's what excites you. Exactly. I, I love it. I, I don't feel any um, you know, problem. It, it's great just being able to talk. To, I think that was probably a big motivation. You said, did you wake up and just start the company one day? And I, I realized I want to talk to like people using Elixir. So this seemed like a good avenue to do it. <laughs> I guess I have like one more question. I'm going to circle back to that, the persistent term discussion we were having. So the deploy time, the st- application start is dependent on Paraxial IO's uptime then, right? Yeah, it's just a network request. Um, it's pretty straightforward. You can also, if you're in a development environment, you know, disable the agent naturally. Gotcha. So it's just, you know, the development experience is better, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. got it. Awesome. Now, are you, is it called dog, dog fooding, right? Are you also using Paraxial IO on your own Yes, I, I absolutely love the fact that we are it, it it gets a little bit confusing. I don't know if you've ever read this book, uh, Godel Escher Bach. In the book, there's like these recursive stories where there's like two people telling a story about two people telling a story. 
and then those two people are, and it's it's it kind of goes down but the praxial io itself is defended by praxial io but then i need to like set it up where there's an instance of praxial io for the praxial io backend and i have these diagrams which are very fun uh, to draw, but that is something that I think is cool about the company as well is that we are we are dog foodied in that way. Okay, folks. Unless uh, is there anything else you would like to add, Michael, before we kind of transition to the picks part of the podcast? I suppose I should do my plugs and things. If you want to talk yeah. to me, my email it's Michael at Praxial.io. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll you'll put it in the show notes. We're on Twitter, um, LinkedIn as a company. Gen, shout out to GenServer.social. Uh, we're active on there as well. It's the Fediverse instance. Yeah, I suppose I should also mention the... I don't know when this this episode will come out, but presumably before the training that we talked about. If you're interested in you know learning about Elixir and Phoenix security, I'll be giving the training fully remote at ElixirConf in April. So I, I hope to see you there as well. But yeah, thank you guys. Okay, then let us talk about picks. So Adi, Adi, what have you brought today? Yeah, I have a cool one. So a game came out yesterday, today, whatever. Hogwarts Legacy, right? Been excited about that for years. But what happened at midnight, because you know, my wife and I was excited, we were trying to sign up to wbgames.com and they had a bot attack. <laughs> so I wanted to mention that. It's super important, super important at launch to have uh, some kind of some kind of throttling, some kind of bot attack prevention. But that's that's my only pick today, I think. Oh, I think uh, also a quick celebration. I learned that three people, well, yeah, okay, three people got a job through our shoutouts on this podcast in the last year. So uh, super, exci- super excited about the fact that the shoutouts are working to some extent. Nice. Alan, what are your picks for this week? Yeah, I just got one pick. I've been playing this crazy game called uh, Vertigo. Have you ever heard that one before? Nope. It's called Alfred Hitchcock Vertigo. It's a very famous film called Vertigo. But the game has got like, it's like nothing to do with the movie necessarily, even though it says Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo on it. The story is just, outrageous uh it's basically a very simple point and click kind of game yeah you like you just look at something and you press button and and that's it and you just kind of the screen tells you what to do but the story uh, for me is just like draw me in it's just so out outrageous i'm almost near the end and I, I just every time i get closer to finishing the story because i want to know the ending of it something always pops up i have to do something somebody calls me or bugs me or whatever so i kind of regret having a wife sometimes but anyways yeah <laughs> anyways it's a really fantastic game if you like interesting stories i think it's really great i'm surprised on steam it only has mixed recent reviews but yeah i think it's about like a 12 hour long game or 9 to 12 hours it's not too bad the only negative part is like there's no like how do i say the whole game is like a movie where you're just there's like no stopping so you don't really know when you're actually playing the game or watching something just randomly it'll tell you like to press a button if you guys remember that game from a long time ago where like you're like a movie a cartoon character and you you have to press a button at the right, at the right time or else you die something like that no elena no freaking clue what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool, really cool game. I got it on Humble Bundle a while ago, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. So that's my pick. Michael, do you have any picks for us? Before we, this episode started, we were talking about about picks, and I was going to do three blue, one brown, which is the the math YouTube channel. I feel like viewers, you've probably seen it, but he makes like animations for math concepts, like like how Bitcoin works from a like a technical point of view or like linear algebra. Um, but I suppose I, I should do a video game too, because everyone else did. You don't have to. Don't feel obliged. Because <laughs> the, the last one I played it was the it was the original Deus Ex, which 
came out like over two decades ago, I think. But I, I love that game. It is so much fun. And the, the plot is crazy. It's like there's a pandemic and this conspiracy. You're like an agent for this. It's called Unaco in the game. But it's, it's like kind of, it's kind of got this cult status. So I feel like there's a little bit of like renewed interest in it. But I loved it. It's a, and I think it's like 10 bucks on good, good old games or something. I don't, I, don't, I don't own a gaming PC or anything right now. So a lot of the games I play are old. Maybe I'm just getting older. But yeah, that's my pick for this week. Nice. Thank you. I also have to join the ranks of picking video games. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, my pick for this week is a, a game I've had on my backlog for the longest time. Like I, I did pl start play it a few months back and then I kind of lost interest. And the game is Disco Elysium. And I picked it up again oh, that's recently. that's a great one, yeah. Yeah, because they that's actually, a, a while ago, they added voice acting. And that actually changed the whole deal for me i was kind of surprised by how much that changed my experience with it because before that it was actually purely text excellently written text i must must say like the dialogues are amazing but it still is just text so <laughs> it i enjoyed it and then i put it down planning to play it again and i never did <laughs> like how the summertime these things go you know but lately i've been starting another playthrough and with like the voice acting is amazing. It's so, so good. And what Disco Illusion is basically about, it's a role-playing game without any combat. There's no combat in this game. <laughs> There's just a bunch of mental and like it's also physical attributes, but they're all like a bit weird. And it's about this cop, which is at a low point in his life. I mean, the, the game basically starts off with him waking up from binge drinking and binge drinking so much that he lost his memory. Like he doesn't remember who he is. And <laughs> But he's assigned to solve a case of this dead guy hanging like hanging, hanging on a tree. And But he kind of has to puzzle together who he is, like who murdered this person. And yeah, it's it's very entertaining and pretty hilarious. So I can really recommend it. Disco Elysium. And another pick would be, um, since we talked about rate limiting, and there's actually one plug and one library you can be using there if you uh, maybe for personal project or whatever, it's called Hammer. And it's a, a plug which is also has a pluggable storage backend. So in theory, you could be using Redis. I think they even have a, a Redis backend, but it's also the default backend is just ETS. So if you maybe have like a personal project and for whatever reason, <laughs> what we talked about today with Parallel, I, I knew this would happen. <laughs> Paraxial. <laughs> Paraxial is not something it's you can <laughs> then a hammer is at least a little tool you can be using to, to set up a rate limiting. So yeah, that is something I've used in the past. I was pretty straightforward. I'm pretty happy with it. So I can recommend it. Okay. Any hey, Sasha, I got one more pick. I forgot about this. So I played a very cool board game last week. First board game that I've played that's like not turn-based, like real-time-ish. It's called Captain Sonar. It is epic. I was so surprised by how much fun it was it's it can get tricky i think it's also minimum six players but it can i think it's like eight or eight or ten players is maximum which is like there aren't very many board games you can play with 10 players which are this much fun yeah definitely give it a try if you guys are into board games captain sonar is epic okay then it was a pleasure talking to you michael thank you for coming onto the show yeah thank you for having me this was uh fantastic i appreciate it and thank you all for sticking to us and for listening to me screwing up the name of Paraxial. <laughs> I knew this would happen. I was so happy I got here without doing that. So yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Tune in next time when we have another episode of Felix Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>